I thought maybe you'd just stay standing. You remember what we learned last week? Remember what we learned last week? Amen. May it be so in my life. Do you guys have your hands open tonight or do you have them folded closed? All right, we're learning. We're getting there. Okay, it's great to be with you tonight. Grab your Bible and turn with me to the final book in the Old Testament. Can you believe that? That's awesome. But I've enjoyed the Old Testament, haven't you? Yeah, we're going to be in the book of Malachi. Malachi is four chapters long, all right? It's the final book. It's God's final word to his people before he goes silent for 400 years. I want you to think about that, what that would be like in your life today if God went silent. I mean, tonight, just participating in this time of expressing who God is to us and the truth of his word, can you imagine? Can you imagine if he had remained that way? And next week, we're going to pick up with his first words back after 400 years. But tonight, I want us to look at what he had to say to his people before he, before he went silent. Because there's significance in those words, not just to the people that Malachi wrote to and spoke to, but to you and I today. So we're going to do a couple of things. First, let's celebrate. Let's congratulate Brian again on his baptism tonight. That is so, so exciting. Last Saturday night, we had Angie Rieger come and surrender her life to Jesus Christ. Let's celebrate Angie. Sunday morning, it was Emerson Passwater. We want to congratulate her and her family. These things are significant just as what's going on in your life is significant. The way that you're responding to God's word as we have been through the entire Old Testament. Now I realize we hit just different highlights and spots, but some of you, some of you have read through the entire Old Testament of the Bible and that's to be celebrated. Way to go. Way to go because God's word, remember what we said last week? Just God's word being read alone is life changing. Not to mention when we start living by his word. Tonight we're blessed to have a couple with us who last year uh, was when they pulled the trigger, but for a long time they have been working through all the logistics to go full time into the mission field. And not the mission field being over in Kentucky, which I know is a huge, huge mission field, right? But they have been overseas in a dark place. And tonight they come just as they're passing through on their visit to thank you for your support over the last year and to share a little bit with us tomorrow morning uh, at the nine o'clock hour back in one of the main level classrooms if you want to know more about their ministry. But I'm going to have them stand and we're going to pray for them. And then during communion and offering, I'm going to have Ron and, and, and Marianne uh, stand at each, each table so that you can, and Marie, excuse me, so that you can greet them and you can just, just say a word of blessing over them as you pass them. So Ron and Anne-Marie, would you stand? Let's welcome them tonight. (Applause) 
Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these two. And Lord, you know them, you made them, you wrote their story. And God, they have been brave enough to accept that and to partner, to partner with you. Um, you've called them, Father, to go into Eurasia and to stand outside of mosques and share the light of the world with those who are in the dark. And Father, as they come home and they regroup and they, they uh, get ready to go to their new assignment, Father, I just pray at thanking that you've gone before them just as you have each one of us, that you've made the way for them, that you have a plan and a purpose, and Father, that there are people that are waiting there to be enlightened because you have declared it so. And so tonight, thank you for blessing us with their presence to people who love you so, who've surrendered it all to you. May we, Father, be an encouragement to them, your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome home. It's good to have you guys. In Malachi chapter 1, that's where we begin with God's love, God's love for his people. Now, Malachi's an interesting read. How many of you got to Malachi and you thought, oh man, what a way to end. It's only four chapters, right? And then you started reading it. And uh, I have spoken some from Malachi, particularly Malachi chapter three, because that's where everybody goes. But in reading the book of Malachi, I almost, I almost decided to just read the whole thing to you tonight, but we are really, really tight, and there are some things that I think God wants us to focus on just right there in chapter one. God's love for his people. Let's read chapter one, verse two. God says, I have loved you, says the Lord. Now, who's he speaking to here? He is speaking to his nation. He's speaking to his chosen people, a people who have been where? Remember, they've been in Babylon for 70 years. Last week, under Nehemiah and under Ezra the priest, what did they do? They had come back. They had rebuilt the wall. They'd rebuilt Jerusalem. They had built the temple for the second time. And Ezra the priest does what? He grabs God's word. He brings it out before the people. And the people stand for six hours straight because they were so hungry for God's word. Have you come hungry tonight for what he has to say to you and to me, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? In his book, The Sacred Romance, John Eldridge writes, God pursues us with his love and he calls us, you and me, to a journey full, full of closeness, adventure, Beauty, to ignore this whispered call is to become one of the living dead who carry on their lives divorced from their heart. Now, this is where God's people are. God has expressed his love. He's not just expressed his love. He has demonstrated his love for generations all the way back to Abraham when he said to Abraham, I am going to build a nation through you. And this nation... Oh, you're going to stand apart because you are living in my favor. You are living in my blessing. You are living in my love. Yet God's people again and again ignored the whisper. And their apathy toward God is 
obvious to him in multiple aspects of their life. And they asked God, how have you loved us? And God's response is in verse two, three, look at history. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned, this, turned his mountains, his land, into a wasteland and has left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Now, this is one of those times where this probably doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it wouldn't have to me. Had several years ago, I not set out to not just look at my favorite passages of Scripture, but to go back and look at the entire story. And why is the Old Testament very important to us folks? Why? Because it tells us who God is down to the way he feels about things, the way he looks at things, the very essence of who he is and his character. And so we have to go all the way back to the beginning for this statement to make sense because when God uses the word love and hate, he is not talking about the human emotions of love and hate. It has everything to do with God expressing, I have chosen this group of people to represent me. And you say, well, how can he do that? Well, first of all, he has every right to do it. He can love who he wants and he can hate who he wants. We're just blessed because he's chosen to love us. And he chose to love Israel. And he takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 5. Abraham's son Isaac's children, twins, carried, carried in the womb of his wife Rebekah. It's an account we didn't preach on, but it's an account that you read about. Rebecca was pregnant with twins, the twins that she carried in her womb. She felt them fighting. And those of you who have carried even a single child, you know the fighting that goes on. Can you imagine two wrestling in there all the time? And it was so much so that she went to God and she prayed to God, God, why is this? And listen to God's response in verse 23. It's on the screen. He says to her, Rebecca, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. God is establishing that even before the twins were born, God who created them knew the choices they would make. And you know what? God knows that about you and I and yet he still chooses us. Even though Jacob would begin as a schemer and a scoundrel, he would mature and learn to trust God. Esau, he never would. He treated God with indifference. And so in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, it explains this to us. It says, see that no one is godless like Esau who for a single meal sold his inheritance, his birthright, as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. God is saying to his people here in this demonstration, this is something that they would have understood. We don't understand it because we're not that familiar with the history, but I just brought you up to date on that. But the people that God's speaking to here through Malachi, 
They got this. They got what God was saying. And God's message is, look, folks, I chose you. And this is how you know I love you, because I chose you, because I blessed you, because I've carried you, because I have led you. I chose you to be the recipient of my blessing, my presence, my grace, and my love. And this is where God begins this series of over 23 questions that he asked his people. God eliminates any question of his love for us by showing us how to love. God eliminates any question of his love for us by showing us, his people, how to love. Now, now let me help that make a little bit of sense. Just as God chose Jacob, whose name became Israel, just as God chose Israel to be recipient of his love, so has he chosen you and me through Jesus Christ. He chose us. But the question that he poses now through Malachi is, do you love him in return? Do your actions, do your actions demonstrate that you understand the significance of the love that God has shown you in choosing you. You see, the breakdown we experience in relationship with God and frankly with everyone else, if you can't get your relationship right with God, you will never have your relationship right with your spouse, with your children, with those that you want so badly to have relationship. You see, the breakdown always comes back to our unwillingness to accept that love is a choice. It's not a feeling. And that's what God sets out through Malachi to straighten out with his people in verse 6. Verse 6, he says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I'm a father, where's the honor due me? If I'm a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty. You see what he's saying? He's saying from here, from my perspective, what I'm seeing is that you despise me. <laughs> you say, how do we despise you? God's response, by being shoddy, sloppy, and defiling in worship. I'm your last thought. And when you do think of me, you come in wore out. You come in empty-handed. You only come wanting something. And what you do offer me, well, even the people you respect the most, even your government would not accept that from you. Now, it's one thing to be told that your singing isn't very good. It's one thing to be told that you're, you're unable to sing and clap. And church, you cannot sing and clap. Bless your hearts. And I'm right up here leading the way. Man, thank you so much, Emily, for at least helping us, right? But, they, but we can only go so far with it, right? And it's one thing for me to stand up here and say, we're going to hire a professional clapper because we just can't get the clapping down. <laughs> I know right where we're going to get one. I, I did that as a worship minister one time. I recruited a guy, and that was his sole job. He couldn't sing a lick, but he could clap. And so we had me, and we had a couple of people that could really sing next to me, and then we had our clapper up there. And his job was just to keep the beat for us. It's one thing to say we need a paid clapper on stage to help us with that, but God's indictment here is so much stronger. And his first indictment is that they had let the extraordinary 
become the ordinary. And that's true in our lives today. Don't allow the extraordinary to become the ordinary. Honor God with everything, with everything. Now, I want you to notice here the phrase, Lord Almighty. Now, you know I'm not one of those word people, but every once in a while, it's worth it. When you're a little bored in your study, to go just a little bit underneath that and kind of look at some of the original Hebrew or the Aramaic, right, or the Greek. I, I know all of that's Greek to us, right? It is to me. But every once in a while, it doesn't hurt to call Brandon Dickerson, right, and ask him to tell you something, or, or David Johnson sitting right down here. But the word Lord represents the word Adonai, which represents what? Yahweh. Yahweh. And the thing about the Lord Almighty, the reason why they use the word Lord Almighty, God used that, is the name Yahweh was too holy to be spoken by human lips. Can you imagine? That name for God was too holy to be spoken. In fact, it was so holy that it was only used, it's only pronounced from the mouth on the day of atonement, and then only by the high priest in the most holy of holies. If the name did need to be written down, the scribes, like Ezra, they would take a bath before they wrote down the name Yahweh. And then once they wrote it down, they would burn the pen because it wasn't worthy of writing any other word, any other name. It was so revered. Now I want to pause here and I want to ask you what God's asking his people in Malachi. What he's asking his people, he's asking us today, and that is, is your worship, is your sacrifice of time and treasure and talent, is it what it should be given the reality that it's being presented to Yahweh? Is it the one who causes everything, the one who's unchanging, the one who inhabits eternity? In verse 6, the priests who are listening to Nehemiah are probably saying, amen, that's right, bring it on, you tell those people. They can't even clap and sing. They bring the leftovers to you week after week. But notice, it's the priests that God addresses first. They weren't being obedient themselves. And listen, those of us who've been given the privilege of preaching and teaching, those of you who are leading our teens and our children downstairs, do you understand that we cannot lay over? We cannot just simply let what the world is shoving down our throats go all the way down. This is exactly what he's talking about right here. These priests, he's going to make a list, have allowed all of this crap to come in to the Lord's presence and to be presented as something that's worthy when it's not. And that's why. I want you to notice the seats are full in here tonight. And it's not because we mince words. It's not because we're politically correct. It's not because we believe that just because you feel that way that God made you that way and it's okay for you to be that way. This place is full tonight because we teach the truth of God's word and these priests weren't doing it. And this was God speaking to them saying you better get it together. He says it's you priests who show contempt for my name. 
You who place defiled food on my altar, you've let it happen. You've let it creep in. Instead of requiring the people what I've instructed, you've let it slide. Let me tell you, I am not going to be that person that gets spoken to that way when he returns. You can say whatever you want to today to me, but I want to hear it from him, not you. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, crippled or diseased animals, isn't that wrong? Try offering that to your senator, your governor, your president. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Genesis 4 reminds us what happened when two brothers, Cain and Abel, made sacrifices to God. Remember? Cain was a farmer. He brought some of the fruit of his harvest. And Abel was a shepherd who brought the fatty portions of his flock, the first and the best, as an offering. What happened? God accepted Abel's offering, and he rejected Cain's. 1 John 3.12 tells us that the reason Cain's sacrifice was not accepted was that he had a heart full of evil. He was selfish. He was self-centered. He thought it was okay to bring the leftovers. Hebrews 11.4 says that the reason Abel's offering was accepted was that he had a heart of faith. God looked at the sacrificer and then the sacrifice. God looked at the offerer and then he looked at the offering. He was looking for authentic adoration, not a sacrifice that was in essence a sham. Is that what you're offering to God is a sham? Insincerity, no commitment, leftovers, half-heartedness, an act. The priests and the people were playing church. They were doing the bare minimum, even less, despite the fact that God had made it clear what he demanded. And why does God demand certain things from his created? Why does he demand things from the people that he chose to love? Because he loves us. And he wants us to know his love. You will never know the love of God until you learn how to love. And you realize the cost of loving. Because to truly sacrifice is to fully trust. And to fully trust, well, there's love. 1 Corinthians 13 Love trusts. The only way to know God's love is to experience what it is to truly sacrifice. And no wonder these people were thinking, does God really love us? <laughs> they thought love was simply going through the motions. That love was showing up, giving something. You know, you gotta, can't come empty-handed. You got to look, look like you're playing the part. But you see, the sacrifice always reflects the heart. <laughs> it always reflects the heart. You might think you're fooling somebody, but you're not fooling anybody. You're not even fooling yourself. You see, a lame and sick sacrifice, that just represents a lame and sick heart. A shoddy sacrifice is a shoddy relationship. You must not really care. A leftover gift well, that's an empty heart. 
You see, God was about to make the greatest sacrifice by sending Jesus Christ in the only way he could begin to ever explain this. The only way for us to ever begin, the only way for the Israelites to ever conceptualize the depth of that sacrifice, his love, would have been to experience true sacrifice themselves. And the same is true for us. It's only in true sacrifice that we can even begin to understand the love of God. And when you do, it opens a whole new dimension for our lives today. Now, there are at least three standards that God draws our attention to when it comes to our worship, our sacrifice to him. And these are not foreign to you. You've heard them a million times. I'm a simple man. And God's word is simple to understand if you give it a minute. And the first is this, that we are to give God the best. I've said that multiple times already. We are to give God the best. Israel had been taught. You read this through the most boring parts of your read this year as we went through the Old Testament. Israel had been taught to look through their flocks to find the animal without defect or blemish to sacrifice. Now, what's so special about that animal? Well, it costs you something. This is the animal that is going to be your stud, the one that you breed with. This is the animal that's the most healthy, that would have brought the most at the market. This is the animal that's the best of the best. And this is what God demanded from them. This wasn't easy, but it's what he required. God demands the best from us today. The best. Not what's left, but the best. Second, we're to give to God first. God doesn't want left. I hate leftovers. Do you, do you like leftovers? I, I, I know, I really should like them. But there just seems to be no good way to heat them up. It's just never as good. Now, some things, right, are good. The stuff that's, the more preservatives, the better it is left over, Right? <laughs> You heat it up and it gets all those chemicals going again. <laughs> but God is to never get the leftovers. He's to receive what is right, not what's left. When the Israelites gave God 10% off the top, it helped them realize what? That everything that they had been given came from who? Their hard work, their intelligence. It came from God. A few years ago, according to the IRS, our IRS, those who make the least amount of money contribute the greatest percentage of their income to the church, greater than those who make the most money. Why is that? Why is it? Because when we have little, we trust a lot. But the minute that we start having more, what do we do? We think that it's up to us, and it's not. It's not. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 9, God takes this issue with the lack of letting go by those who have been the most blessed. I want you to listen to this. This is some of the strongest language. 
But, but it's strong in that it goes back to our first point tonight that if we're going to understand God's love, we have to first understand how to love. We, ha- we have to understand the substance of love. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 9, you are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Now, remember what a tithe, the tithe was the first 10%. Whenever they went out, uh, my, my kind of brother-in-law to be, but, 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 but he's not to be yet. He's here tonight at the room. And uh, he, he raises uh, all kinds of stuff on his farm, but he raised corn. And I mean, this corn is the best sweet corn ever hit your lips, right? And so last weekend he brought... He just brought 11 ears, I think, and there were 14 of us. I mean, what a cheapskate, right? Or at least that's what my mother-in-law said. I found out later she had 10 extra ears stuck in the closet for her. But you see, we're to bring the first, the first. So, so when he goes and picks that crop, according to God, that first 10% of those, what is it, like 55,000 ears or something, something crazy, some crazy amount of corn they picked by hand. But that first 10% is supposed to go to God. And they're like, how do you do that with corn? Well, back in the day, before we had the dollar and all of these things, one of the ways that farmers did that, that's what they had. They came and they laid that down in the temple. And from that, the priests were fed, the Levites were fed. Some of it was placed on the altar and burned as a grain offering to God, but it was brought there. Why was it brought there? Because they needed to not have control over it. See, the minute that you withhold something, you're taking control of it. You're deciding that you know better than God what to do with what he's given you. You see, there's no trust in that. And so he says, you're under a curse because you're robbing me. You bring the whole thing into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. I just explained that to you. But here's the part that we don't get. The entire Bible says, do not test God. He says it over and over, do not test me. And the one time here he says, test me in this, says the Lord, and see if I'll not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you'll not have room enough for it. Test me in this. You hear what he's saying in context here? You see, this isn't a sermon on tithing. You can take your hand off your wallet. It's a lesson on learning how to love, how to trust. God's saying, you want to see how I provide for you? You want to see how I love you? You want to see how I care for your every need? You trust me. You do what I've commanded of you. Bring me the best. Bring me the first. Now, can you hear underneath that command what he's saying to you? He's saying to you and he's saying to me, let me love you. Let me throw open the floodgates. Let me pour out so much blessing that you won't have room for. But the only way that this is going to happen is if if I go first. If you put me first. Listen to verse 11. I will prevent pests. Speaking of locusts and those types of, I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Now hear me. Even if God is simply referring to 
If all he's talking about here is literally the pests not devouring our food, isn't that enough reason to trust him? God will show us his love by protecting our food source. That, that, that would be enough. But my friends, this is a word picture that speaks to the greatest threat we face here on this earth. And that is the devourer, Satan. This is the enemy who stands at our door, wanting into our life and wanting into the life of our family. And here God is saying, you put me first, you give the first of what's most important to you, and I will see that Satan doesn't get his foot in the door. I want you to think about that for a minute. And you're thinking, David, you are really stretching that. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. Because ultimately that's what this is all about, is who we let in our lives and who we don't. Jesus said, you love me, then you obey my commands. My friends, I'm far from perfect. And yes, I struggle at times with wanting to withhold the first. You would think since the seventh grade, I have always given God the first. <laughs> but I still struggle with it. You know when I struggle with it? <laughs> is when I get more. But I don't stop. And you know why I don't give in? Well, one is I've made it so that I'd have to go through three or four electronic things to be able to cut it off. So that way it's out of my hands. I don't have to make the decision every week. And I would suggest the same to you. But the reason why I don't stop is because the minute I do, it undermines my faith that God is the provider. The minute that I withhold from him, it undermines my faith that he's the protector. It undermines my faith that he is the one who will keep Satan outside. And that leads us to number three. And that is we're to give to God sacrificially. Sacrificially. Now here we refer to that as giving above and beyond. Now, now we like to take a scripture and we like to take it out of context. Like, like the scripture, I didn't bother to look it up because most people who don't want to tithe have it, have it memorized. It, it says something like, bring, bring the first, bring what you've decided in your, not does say bring the first, it says, bring what you've decided in your heart on the first day of the week. And you're like, well, I decided a dollar's just fine today. But if you look at what's going on there, Paul is telling the people, hey, there's a church, just like 500 years earlier, there's a church in Jerusalem that we're building, and so you need to give above and beyond the tithe in order on the first when I'm there so that I can take that money and we can build that church. That makes sense now? The tithe has been established. It continues to be established. It's the first and the best. It's right off the top. But we're to give sacrificially. And we refer to that as being above and beyond the tithe. It's when God, it's when we say to God, God, you've opened up the floodgates of heaven. How many of you has God not opened the floodgates of heaven in your life? I'm not talking about extra dollars. I'm talking about blessing. Well, first of all, every one of you is sitting up straight here tonight, so that's a blessing. 
Others of you in this room have been through cancer or are going through cancer. I cannot fathom why a person who has been given one extra day because they, God has spared them cancer in their life, I cannot understand why they would be any place but the house of God on the weekend. I can't understand it. I can't understand, those of you who have children, why you would put the lake in front of the one who has allowed you and blessed you to have a breathing, living child. I cannot fathom that. And God can't either. God, you've opened up the floodgates of heaven, and out of the abundance you have shown me, I will continue to give to you. That's what giving above and beyond, that's what giving sacrificially is. We do this when we give above and beyond the tithe financially. We do that for things like this, this building, which I wish we didn't. I wish we didn't have to pay a million and a half dollars for a building. But at least we're not going in debt to do it. At least we've got people to put in it. We're not building it so they'll come. We're building it because you're here. So it's us. We who have been blessed are to give above and beyond so that we can get this thing done and we can be in there together. And we can bring our friends, as many of you are doing, to know who? To know him. So we give financially above and beyond. We give above and beyond grace. We're to give above and beyond grace to those who messed up. Us who have messed up lives that continue to spill over into other people. We show grace above and beyond the grace that we've been showing. We give above and beyond of our time, our time to those who can't seem to even get a glance from their own family. You stop on your way here or you go an extra few minutes out of your trip to go and pick up someone else and bring them with you. You see a neighbor that has car trouble and you've got an extra one in the driveway and you say, hey, God's blessed me. Take this for a day. This is what it is to give sacrificially. The Apostle Paul wrote, in view of what God has done, in view of his mercy, offer your bodies, not just your hands, not just your money, not just your feet, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is our spiritual act of worship. It's trite, but it's true. You know, a living sacrifice can get up and walk away. He doesn't tie you down. He doesn't make you stay. He doesn't lame you so you can't crawl off the altar. You can crawl off that altar anytime you want to. But then you're no longer a sacrifice. You're no longer giving him the first and the best. Why? Why offer ourselves? Because we know the cost of the sacrifice that's been made for us which is the entire purpose I submit to you that God is making through Malachi. God is saying, I love you. I love you. I have always loved you. I love you. I choose you. Now know my love by trusting me. Know my love by following my ways. 
Know my love by being obedient to my requests of you because when you do, you will know that what I'm about to give you costs me everything, but you're worth it. You see, because that's what Malachi does is he tells us that the next prophet we hear from is gonna be John the Baptist. And who did John the Baptist prepare the way for? Jesus Christ. The Israelites knew that a Messiah was coming. God had told them from all the way back in Genesis chapter three. He told them in Isaiah, he told them in Jeremiah, he told them through Daniel, and he tells us through Malachi, and soon through John the Baptist, but they just couldn't quite grasp it. But you and I have no excuse because that prophecy's been fulfilled. Jesus has come. He has made the ultimate sacrifice for you and me, the greatest act of love, never to be equaled. The book of Malachi begins what's known as the silent period, 400 years until God's silence would be broken with that announcement. <laughs> A savior has been born to you. He is Christ, the Lord. My friends, if you know him, then you grow in that love by humbly serving and sacrificing to him. If you don't know him, now's a great time to get to know him. <laughs> and the best way to know him is to go all in. Don't hold back. Don't play church. Give it all. Give him you. I failed to see until just now that in the back of the room, uh-oh, yeah, it's on you, Miranda. Next time it gets the hammer, <laughs> yeah. I failed to, uh, to mention or failed to see that Scott and Emily Gillis are in the back corner of the room. Do you know what that means? That means it's Stella's home. Of course you know that because you're on Facebook. But. And it's not ironic. It's true. Of all the places they could be tonight, after six weeks of mom and dad and Stella staying literally 24 hours a day in the hospital, they could be any place else tonight, but where are they at? They are where God has commanded them to be. God bless you guys, and God bless Stella as she continues to heal Peace by, is she back there in between you? I can't see past Brian back there. Welcome home, Stella. <laughs> Welcome home. There's some of you in this room that need to come home. Come. Let's stand together and let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for this room full of people tonight that have come to know you, that have come seeking answers in their life, that have come having found the answer in you, who come to worship you and to thank you and to sacrifice to you. Because we know that when we sacrifice to you, we begin to just get some small idea of what your sacrifice for us was like. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for the one who gave it all, 
that we could have it all in you. We love you, Father. We thank you for Stella here tonight, and we pray, God, your healing hand continue. But God, you know what? You've already healed her. You have given her your spirit that lives inside of her through baptism. Father, you have secured her future. Father, her days are written in your book. And Lord, so far, she has been so faithful in accepting them and not just laying back, but leaning in. Father, you've given her two parents that have set the example, but Lord, it's you. It's you that powers her and it's you that touches her life. And Father, why you've allowed this, I pray that you will make it clear through her testimony, through her next steps as a young girl. Father, may that be in all of our lives today. May we open up our story to you for once and for all. May we quit holding back. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'll be back at the next steps, the area close to Stella. Don't you dare come back there and bother her and give her your germs. But you can come back there and see me. And I'd love to talk to you about your next step.